morning we're going to be looking at primarily verses 6 and 7, but I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 7. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Let us pray. Our Father, we do humbly come before you this morning and ask that you would open your word to us and illuminate it by your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand the words of our Lord. Help us understand the will of our God and Father. Give us grace, Father, that we might hear with ears, with spiritual ears. And help us, Father, to plant your word deep within our hearts that it might grow and be nourished further by your word and by the Holy Spirit and produce a harvest for your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. People born between 1985, 1990, and 2005 are, are now called millennials. And of course, we live in an age where, where people, demographic groups, at least in the United States, are, are called by a certain name like millennials because they were coming of age at the turn of the century, which was also the year 2001, the turn of the third millennium since Christ, the millennials being the children of baby boomers, probably the first demographic group, and also of the, of the older Gen Xers that followed the baby boomers. But this idea of millennials focuses on, and it did focus on, the year 2000, Y2K. And apart from those who were born in the 90s and who were still children, at what people thought was the turn of the century, but was in fact the last year of the century, the turn of the century being the next year into 2001, most people who thought about the millennium didn't think about when people were born, but what catastrophe would happen when the clock struck midnight on December 31st, 1999. Now those are those outside the church who were hoarding food and weapons to protect themselves against the the, uh, the meltdown of the world financial system, most of you remember this, and how everything was going to fall apart and all of your bank um, computers would revert back to the year 1900 when nobody at the time would have been alive and then all of your savings would be gone. And so you had to stockpile food and of course you had to stockpile arms and weapons to protect yourself from everyone else who failed to stockpile food coming and stealing yours. Sadly, this was also done within the church by many professing 
Christians who believed that the world was going to come to an end because this was not only, in their minds, the turn of the third millennium since Christ, or the second to the third millennium since Christ, it was, uh, again, in their minds, the entry of the seventh millennium since creation. 4,000 years from creation to the birth of Christ, 2,000 years from the birth of Christ to the year 2000, thus entering the seventh millennium. And to the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, right? And a thousand years is a day. So the logic was, this was going to bring what? The great tribulation. Followed by the thousand year millennial reign of Christ. And so there was a great deal of, of hype and of panic within the Christian church where people were, as they were outside the church, stockpiling food because of the tribulation and also stockpiling weapons and ammunition. What were they thinking? True millennials have been around, really, since the beginning of the church. These are those who are constantly focusing on end-time prophecy and on current events and trying to figure out when the end would come. These are millenarians, is what they've been called in the theology books, but let's just call them millennials, because we have them with us today. The events that took place before the year 2000 mimic those that took place before the year 1000. And it's hard to think about what people thought way back then in the middle of the Middle Ages when they didn't have internet. And yet they communicated to one another, and what they communicated through their letters was the turning of that millennium was going to bring about catastrophe in the world and the Lord's return. Indeed, with the sack of Rome earlier than that, in the 5th century, there were those who believed that was a sign of the beginning of the end. Also with the Reformation, the Reformers believed that what they were witnessing in the breaking away of what they called the true church from the apostate church of Rome was a sign of the coming of the millennial reign of Christ. So there has been in the church's history surges of popularity and of emphasis on end time prophecy starting in 1995 in the run up to the year 2000. We had that series of novels beginning to be published. That series that I will not name but I suggest that if you ever see it at a Garage sale, you, you, you leave it behind. Okay? What's so funny? The authors of that series made a great deal of money in taking the Word of God and turning it into a fantastical novel. And then they had a movies after it. So we have seen millennials profit off of the prophecy of Scripture. What is it within us Throughout the church, whether in, in periods of, of, of calendar years that, that lead up to a momentous date, even though we all know that our calendars are not quite right. Now, you all know that. We, our calendars are our best guess, and we don't all share the same calendar across the world. But what is it about us that, that just is always asking, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to set up your kingdom, that you are restoring your kingdom? And so often, it's not the, the church asking. It's more like the church telling and saying, Lord, it is at this time that you're going to set up your kingdom. 
Because I've done all the calculations. And this is happening in the Middle East. And so-and-so is the premier of, of, of Russia and he has a mark on his head. Or Spain just entered the European community as the 10th nation. And, and so it is the time that you're going to set up your kingdom. And lo and behold, the time that is comes and isn't. And yet the church is still filled with its millennials. We have our amillennials, which is really interesting because they believe there isn't one. We have our post-millennials, believe, who believe that the, the coming of the Lord will be at the end of a metaphorical millennial. Or there are the historic pre-millennials. And they hold that view in contrast to the pre-tribulation pre-millennials. And then, of course, there are the pan-millennials who believe it will all pan out in the end. And for those who can't make up their mind, there are the fence-post-millennials. And those are actually labels. The church is full of millennials. In spite of the clarity of verse 7 of Acts chapter 1, and I've, I've wondered about this for, for most of the time that I have been a believer. And I say most of the time because uh, as a human instrument, I credit the, 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 uh, the entry of the gospel into my heart through a book written by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. Okay, now I know that in my earlier days, I would have a curtain here as I gave that confession. But uh, um, since that time and since really just reading this verse and Jesus saying, it is not for you to know times and epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Why do we keep studying and obsessing over what we cannot know? Well, the answer I've been given in the past is because, well, it's in the Bible, so we need to study it. Well, that is true, and I would agree that we, wish we should study everything written in the Word, but need, we need not obsess over it. We need not fill our Christian bookstores with predictions about when the end will come when we are told so clearly that it is not for us to know the times and epochs. And I would ask, how can the church make a particular millennial view an article of faith? How can any church, in its statement of faith, tell people who come to worship there that this is one of our fundamental tenets upon which we gather as brethren, and apart from which we are not, that's implied, and then lay out a specific order of events regarding the Lord's coming again. We cannot make an article of faith out of that for which we cannot know. It is not given to us to know the times and the epochs, and therefore while we may study them as they appear to us in Scripture, as we read Daniel, as we read Revelation, as we read the Olivet Discourse, yes, let us study and understand what the Spirit has given to us. But to try to predict the time and the date on the calendar in which these things will take place is to go beyond that which is written. It is to move into speculation and it is dangerous territory. So is that, is that where the disciples were? Were they off base? I've often thought as I've read that they were. 
I read verse 6, And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Were they millennials? Well, I want to submit a couple things for us to consider as we pass judgment on the thinking and the attitude of the disciples as is reflected in verse 6. First of all, the expectation of the coming of the kingdom was powerful, it was pervasive, it was prevalent in their day. Last week we had the opportunity of looking back into Daniel and finding that which moved and motivated the Magi to follow that star in the east and to find the king of the Jews who was to come during the, the kingdom of that fourth world empire, which was Rome. And so in that day, the day that is called Second Temple Israel, there was a powerful expectation that led to a number of messiahs and a number of movements that claimed that the kingdom had come. And there were groups that withdrew themselves from the temple and worshipped Jehovah separately because of the corruption that had come upon the temple worship through the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, and the scribes. So the first point is that the expectation of the coming kingdom was there. And it was in the hearts and the minds of everybody, the Magi, Simeon, and the disciples. The second point I want to make is what Jesus said to the disciples before his death. And we looked at this also, that Jesus said to them that he had many things yet to teach them, but they were not able. They were not able to receive the things that he needed to teach them because they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And as we read verse 6 of chapter 1, we are still not yet to Pentecost. We are not yet to the point at which the illumination would be given upon the church in the person of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, given the expectation and the innocent ignorance of the disciples, it could be said that Jesus himself even stimulated their question by what he said. Listen again to what he says when he tells them to leave or to stay in Jerusalem and to not leave. He says, For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now we don't have the time, although it would be, I think, a worthy study to study the intricacies of the kingdom as it was developed in prophecy in the Old Testament, leading into the New Testament, but what we would find is that God's Spirit was always intimately associated with the kingdom. That He would be the power, as David, as David cries out in that, in that plaintive Psalm 51, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David saw the Spirit removed from his predecessor, Saul. And he saw what happened to the king. And even though he had committed a horrible crime in his adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, he pleaded to God that his fate would not be the same as the king who went before him. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And then we read, especially in Ezekiel, but also in Isaiah and Jeremiah, that the coming of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit, was an integral facet of the coming kingdom. 
It was evidence of the kingdom coming because it was God coming to live in the midst of his people. God the king. And so Jesus says to his disciples, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, which they heard as saying, the kingdom is coming not many days from now. And so they ask, just to clarify, we're not quite sure. Could you say it a little more clearly? Like simple yes or no. Which they never really got from Jesus through the previous three and a half years. Is now the time? And enigmatically he says, it's not for you to know that. It's not for you to know that. And in saying that to his disciples, he says it to all of us. And yet, as we looked at last week, does that mean that their expectation was in the wrong place? Does it mean that they should not even think about the kingdom? One author says that all things considered, it was perfectly natural that they should ask whether this that Christ called an enduing with power from on high was that consummation to which they had been taught to look forward. You have been taught from the scriptures. You have been taught by your scribes. You have been taught by your rabbi that the kingdom is coming. And now I'm going to take all that away from you. I'm going to give you the church instead. That is the way this transition, this event that we read about in the book of Acts, that is the way that is portrayed in the majority of Christian teaching in the modern church. You have been led to expect something and I'm not going to fulfill it. I'm going to give you something else. See what you can do with that. But is that what Scripture teaches? Were the disciples so wrong in their understanding? Were they so ignorant that they were still expecting something that had been prophesied for centuries, but now God was going to fail in that fulfillment and give them something else? I think the way I'm forming the question gives you at least the answer, at least in my own mind, no. Their expectations were not wrong. The kingdom did come. And they recognized that the kingdom came. Only they recognized it came in a different form than they had been expected. Even James, the Lord's brother, one of those who was a late believer, one of those who, who really kind of challenged his half-brother Jesus to go on up to Jerusalem because nobody who is going to be famous does anything except in public. Go on out there. But after the resurrection, we, we know that Jesus' family came to understand that he was the promised one. And in Acts 15, that famous council of Jerusalem, James stands up and this is what he says. He says, After these things I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Now to a Jew of any generation since the Babylonian exile, this prophecy from the Old Testament, and James is quoting the Old Testament here, this prophecy of the Old Testament that refers to the tent of David meant to them the restoration of the United Kingdom of Israel. All 12 tribes, the Davidic king, the Aaronic priesthood, and the temple. It was all in that. 
And so when James says, after these things I will return and I will rebuild that tent of David, which had fallen down, what he's saying in prophetic language is, the kingdom has come. But not the way we expected it. Now I have often shared this anecdote and I'll share it again because it applies, but it has to do with a very prevalent teaching in the modern American church. The teaching that the kingdom has been delayed and the church has been brought in as a plan B for this current age so that the Gentiles might have a, a simpler form of salvation because Gentiles are by nature dumber than Jews, obviously, so, so we need a very simple gospel. And then when the tribulation and the rapture comes, or the rapture followed by the tribulation, however you want to view it, the church will be taken out of the way and the kingdom will be brought back. Well, one particular pastor was challenged on this verse in Acts chapter 15 with the words of James and asked, what did James mean? And the answer was, James was mistaken. Okay. Well, I, I don't think James was mistaken. I don't think Jesus was mistaken. I don't think the disciples were off base in their expectation of the kingdom. Israel was looking for the kingdom, and the kingdom came in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Magi were looking for it. Old Simeon was waiting and rejoiced to see it that he might depart in peace. And the disciples were full of prophetic anticipation when Jesus said, Wait, and you will be endued with power from on high. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. But as I've asked in previous sessions as we go into the book of Acts, we're still presented with an enigma. We still have to deal in our own minds, in our own study, with the, with the fact that in spite of the run-up that we have in the Old Testament and in the Gospels and especially the parables of Jesus Christ, this anticipation of the kingdom. Why do we view the book of Acts as the, re the historical record of the founding and the growth of the church? This is, a, this is a question that I think it is imperative to us to study and to come to some form of answer because it undergirds so much of the rest of Scripture. We will think of the church somehow in terms of the kingdom. We will either think of the church as completely separate than the kingdom, or we will think of the church as the exactly same, exact same thing as the kingdom. Those are the two extremes. But somehow in our mind as we're reading the scriptures and we're reading passages like the Olivet Discourse, or the parable of the leaven, or of the talents, and then we're reading Ephesians 5 and talking about the church. Or reading Acts chapter 2 and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Somehow in our mind we have these two biblical concepts. One called the kingdom, one called the church. And most of us really don't know what to do with those two concepts in our heads. And then the scripture throws in another one. Israel. And we're totally confused. And it's very easy for Christians, 
especially Western Christians since the advent of dispensationalism, to simply block Israel out because that's the future, block the kingdom out because that's Israel's, and we'll just deal with the church. Well, there was a a man in the second century by the name of Marcion who did just that. And he took the scriptures that had been handed down through the generations and he basically chopped them up and said, these aren't for us, don't bother with them. And these letters of Paul, we'll deal with these, but but not Revelation. And the bishops of the church in the second century got together And they said, Marcion is wrong. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. You'll know a church, even if they're not so bold, you'll know a church that has taken that view of isolating itself from Israel and the kingdom, except when they have prophecy conferences. Don't get me wrong. But in day-to-day life, you'll know that church by the fact that you will not find it in the Old Testament at all. So what do we do when I say that the church and the kingdom must somehow be related? I want to start by saying we reject the option that the church replaces the kingdom. We reject the option that God failed to fulfill the prophecy that he brought through Daniel. That in the days of the fourth kingdom, he would set up a kingdom whose extent would be the entire world and whose realm would never end. That was the prophecy. We believe that prophecy was fulfilled because that's God. He does what he says he's going to do. So we reject the option that the church replaces the kingdom and that the kingdom during this age has been delayed until a time yet to come. We reject that the church is fundamentally different from the kingdom as well. It is not the same, but it is also not completely unrelated. As we learn about the church through our study in the book of Acts, this is my hope. I think we will see that the kingdom, generally speaking, is much bigger than the church. That there are points of contact and very important points of contact, but that the kingdom is bigger than the church. I would also say that the kingdom is bigger than Israel. The kingdom is bigger than any individual manifestation of it that we encounter in scripture or in history. The kingdom is the complete and visible manifestation of God's rule through Jesus Christ over the whole universe. It includes creation as well as man. It includes the animals, it includes the world as well as man. And so it's bigger than just the church. But I think we need to try to answer the question through this study What is the church? What I'm trying to establish in these first passages where where we're reminded of the things Jesus spoke concerning the kingdom of God and the disciples asking, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? The kingdom was on their mind. It should be on our mind even as we turn the page and we meet the church. And so I hope that we can begin to understand even better what the church is I want to start by saying that the church is what Israel could not be without ceasing to be Israel. The church is the bringing together 
of the Jew and the Gentile into one assembly of God's people without respect to either Jew or Gentile. The church is a new wineskin into which God, through Jesus Christ, is pouring new wine. Now the old wineskin is still perfectly good for the old wine, but the new vintage can't go into the old. Jesus says that the, the disciple of the kingdom is like the scribe who brings out of his house treasures both, both old and new. And so Israel is the manifestation of God's people with a particular focus and purpose. The church is the manifestation of God's people that goes beyond and out of Israel. But are not the same. And the church is what Israel could not be. That Israel, the kingdom is coming. Throughout the history of Israel, the kingdom is yet to come. It is coming. The church, the kingdom has come. But it is hidden. But do we remember from the prophecies, both Old and New Testament, that there is one more event to come? One that was prophesied during the days of Israel when the kingdom was coming. One that was promised during the days of the church when the kingdom has come but is hidden. And that is the new heaven and the new earth. I think most of us in our thinking of what God is doing through Jesus Christ in the church and in the world, the concept of the new heaven and the new earth isn't on our mind very often. But whenever the eyes of the prophets or the apostles were turned to that horizon, we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus Christ sums up all things and presents the kingdom to his Father, they use the terminology of the new heaven and the new earth. And that will be the day for all of us in Christ where we will no longer ask, well, what is the relationship between Israel and the church and the church and the kingdom and Israel and the kingdom? What do all these things mean? Because they will become manifest. Just as the meaning of so many prophecies of the Old Testament have become manifest to us in the New because of the revelation of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the consummation of the kingdom will remove all of our questions. There will never be a time when we have to wonder and study into the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. Because once those events have come to pass, we will see. We will understand because we have the mind of Christ. So what is the church? Well, it's not the kingdom. It's not Israel. And yet, it is the manifestation of God's people during this time, when the kingdom is as leaven, when the kingdom is like a seed, when the kingdom is like a dragnet, and what is said about the kingdom that is manifest and is operative in this age is called this gospel of the kingdom. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. And what is the instrument of that preaching? 
It's the church. We might say fundamentally that's the role of the church. It is not just the primary role of the church, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. It's the only role of the church. It is not the role of the church to do political action groups. It is actually not the role of the church to oppose sin and to legislate or seek for legislation against immoral activities in the world. Now, I know that's astounding because you think if you, you know, that, that phrase, the only thing that will promote evil is for good people to do nothing. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we do nothing. I'm talking about the purpose and the role of the church. And when we say that we're doing nothing because we're not petitioning our congressman and our senator and we're not electing the right president and we're not doing this or doing that, we're not, we're not protesting out on the street, therefore we're doing nothing, means that we don't understand the power of the gospel, which is the most powerful weapon that the church has. It is that which changes hearts not just legislates away sin. And so we're not putting away and ignoring the world when the church devotes itself to the pro proclamation of the kingdom. We're actually hitting the world with a nuclear weapon. I mentioned several weeks ago the similarity between the book of Acts and the book of Joshua. The interesting placement of a history of the results Joshua relative to Moses, and Acts relative to the Gospels. And at that time, I said that Joshua presents to us the fulfillment of the promise of the land. Joshua is a book of conquest, where the Israelites go into the land and they conquer it for God and God's people. Well, Acts is a fulfillment of another promise in the Abrahamic covenant, and that is, in your seed will all the nations of the world be blessed. And I want us to enter into the book of Acts, recognizing that it too is a book of conquest. It really is. As the disciples are in Jerusalem, they are conquering that city, and thousands are coming to the Lord daily. And then when the enemy fights back, and the church is scattered, it goes into the known world from Jerusalem eventually to Rome, conquering and conquering and conquering. And then we read the history of the church. And though there are many eras that we look at and think, oh my word, how bad could it get? And yet progressively throughout that time, the curtain of darkness that had enveloped the entire world except for the remnant within a tiny nation called the people of God, Israel, that curtain of darkness retreated as the gospel has covered the globe. And people have experienced freedom, liberties that they've never known before, prosperity that the world has never known before, democracy, all of these things that are, that are byproducts of the grace of God in the gospel of the kingdom through the church. It is a book of conquest without an end, an open-ended book of martial victory, but in all cases in the spiritual realm and not in the physical. 
along the lines of the similarities, listen to Jesus' first sermon. Now, that's called the Sermon on the Mount, of course, but we read in Matthew chapter 4, before he begins what we call the Sermon on the Mount, we read that Jesus went about preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His opening message was about the kingdom of heaven. Peter's first sermon was, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Both of them came into the world, into their ministry, with the same message, repent. Mars, on Mars Hill, Paul says to the Athenians, God is now calling all men everywhere to repent. This word repent, associated with the kingdom, when we bring those together, we have the basic content of what Jesus says is this gospel of the kingdom. Repent because God has fulfilled his promise. He has brought the kingdom in. The king has come. The king has conquered. He has bound the strong man. And now his victory is going to go out from Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world through the church. We call our religion Christianity. I don't like that name. I mean, we know that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, but the name Christianity just places our faith alongside of so many others, right? Christianity versus Buddhism, Christianity versus Judaism, Christianity versus Islam. It's a name of a religion. What did Paul call it? Before he became part of it, it was called the way. I don't think we can change the name of our religion. I think it's too set. But you know what? It really is. I mean, we are Christians, Christ ones. That is who we are. But what we are together as a church, as the body of Christ, is the way. We are the way. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we are his body. The church is the way. And so when Benjamin Warfield was countering an errant view of the essence of Christianity back in the beginning, the early years of the 20th century, he said this, Precisely what Christianity was at the beginning has ever been throughout its history and must continue to be so long as it keeps its specific character is a redemptive religion. Or rather, that particular redemptive religion which brings to man salvation through the death of Jesus Christ. That is the message, that is the gospel of the kingdom, that is the weapon of our warfare, and that is the means by which God in Christ, through the church, is conquering the world. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would indeed continue to conquer Continue to roll back the darkness of sin and depravity. Continue to add to your church daily those who are being saved. Continue to build that kingdom through the church so that at its manifestation you might receive all the glory as you will. And Father, I pray that you would help us in our own eyes, in our own minds, in our own hearts to orient ourselves properly to the kingdom, knowing that though we are members of the church, we are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We have been 
taken from the kingdom of darkness, and we have been translated into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your beloved Son. And I pray, Father, that we might live in this world as kingdom citizens, that our hearts might not be drawn away to the nations of this world, even our own, that patriotism might not cloud our biblical judgment, our self-assessment as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Father, all these things I ask that you would do, that we might fulfill your word through the power of your Holy Spirit, together as well as as individuals. And that the gospel of this kingdom, Father, we pray that it would never fail to be preached from this pulpit and also, Father, from all of the pulpits of the churches in this city, state, and nation. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit again and bring revival, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand again this morning to receive the benediction. The exhortation from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.